I want to encourage you to find your way to the book of Jonah and whatever Bible is nearest you that you can get to. Uh, the text is printed in the bulletin's grape. We're going to try to look at a little bit more today. Uh, maybe in this time you didn't get an overview of the entire book, although I'm going to save that promise to make sure we get through the stuff at the front uh, that matters most. Uh, our Pew Bibles hopefully will be here soon. We're looking at it just a couple of weeks now uh, before we're going to have the New King James in the pew for you to look at. Uh, that is what I'm using this morning. Of course, the Pew Bible right now is the ESV, uh, and it's not really wrong, but it is different, a little different. So if you notice that. And um, we're going to go back to chapter one and, and really dig in at the start here, especially, and try to set up this story uh, a little bit more. And we're going to start you know, just with 1 verse 1, where it says, Now the word of Jesus, right? Yahweh, the Lord, God, Adonai, you know, Jehovah, the, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the word of that God came to Jonah, the son of Abitai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Okay, so that claim right there at the start, the word of God came to Jonah, was to Jonah in the Hebrew. It's very, it's very um, old way of talking, even in the Hebrew. It makes no mistake. There is no question. This is a claim to history. This is not a story. This is not a cartoon. This is not a dream. This is a claim to history the way Isaiah claims history when he says to Hezekiah the king, repent or Assyria, the kingdom will destroy you. Uh, this is a claim to history that is made when Abraham buys a bit of land and so that he can put his body in it when it's dead. Right? This isn't an idea. This is how life happens. And when the word of Jesus comes to a prophet, this isn't that often, but when he does, it means that prophet is supposed to do exactly what he's told. He is going to be a conduit. He's going to be a funnel through which the word of God is going to come. And in this case, this is like the greatest mission text you could ever have. You could get together a giant assembly and throw a great festival and get all the money to help. Because Jonah, the word of Jesus came to you and it said, go to the worst place on the entire planet and tell them that if they don't repent, they're going to be destroyed. You have to get all the way to the end of the book to realize th the reason Jonah doesn't go is because he thinks that if he goes, they'll listen and God won't destroy them. It's the real punchline of the book. Jonah's pissed at the end of the book because they got saved. The reason he gets on the boat to go away is he wants Nineveh to be destroyed. And you know what? If you know about the IRS, you might feel a certain way about Ogden, Utah, or the District of Columbia. Or perhaps you've heard of Davis, Switzerland. Or, I don't know, Mecca. There's all sorts of places in the world where there's evil. Evil spirits and evil men. Jonah gets a commission from God, go to the place where it's evil, tell them to stop being evil, because I, God, say so. And he, he doesn't want that. And that is the, the major thing in the entire book. Jonah doesn't want them to be saved. What on earth is up with that? But again, if you understand evil, if you ever looked evil in the eye, well, maybe you understand that too, right? 
Now, the story is back and forth between these two things. And let's add one more piece to this puzzle. I mean, why are we here today? It's the second Sunday in Lent. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew throughout this entire year in our Gospel readings, more or less. And, and now we're looking at Jonah. Well, it's because Jesus, when he's tested by those Pharisees, the legalists, and the Sadducees, the cynics, he's tested. They don't believe who he is. And they say, prove who you are. He says, Jonah. Jonah's all you get. He walks away. He doesn't even bother to explain it to him. In, in other texts, Mark and Luke, he'll, he'll explain, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, uh, will be in the belly of the earth, the grave, three days and three nights. And even though you know your modern skeptics just want to get in there and yell about three days and three nights, it all works out mathematically when you look at the history of the thing both in terms of uh, can a man actually be in a fish that long? The answer outside of the Bible is yes, it's happened other times. And uh, in terms of then uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, is this the fulfillment of all things for the salvation of the world? The answer is yes. Yeah, we killed him on a Friday and he rose on a Sunday and that's three days so far as God's concerned. What's that to you and why would you argue? But that's where we are now. In America, we're in a place where people argue about the Bible and how it's wrong. Long before they decided to tell us that a man's not a man and a woman's not a woman, they told us Jonah was just a story. And enough of Christianity was able to say, yeah, probably, that we went right along for the ride with everybody else in that perverted train of thought. They thought they could look at Scripture they could decide with their own minds what is true and what is not, and they could keep what is true and throw out what is false. And while that was like a 300 or a 200-year seed in terms of our institutions, in terms of undermining Western civilization's belief in truth, it took them hundreds of years to do this. You know, it's just been like 15 years since they watched them pull the plug, right? Like it's gone fast, this change. I was, I was telling my kids in the kitchen yesterday, I know it's hard to believe, but Western civilization worked for like 500 years. And they were like, yeah, I, I know. But they also know that it's, it's not really working now. And the reason is as simple as God didn't create the earth in six days. And Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a fish. That's where it starts for us English-speaking Christians. Getting back to believing that the Bible says God did create the earth in six days. So who are we to let anybody in any of our schools especially teach otherwise, right? And Jonah, uh, you can argue about what kind of fish. But if you really think that, that God, who is God, is not capable of putting any one of us inside an animal for like a day and a half and having us spit out again, if you think that can't happen, why, and I mean this, why in the hell would you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Why would you ever think such a thing? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You don't believe in Jonah, but you believe in Jesus? What kind of moron are you? I really mean it. It's the sign of Jonah that proves Jesus is going to do what he does before he does it. You want to cut off the feet of the statue. It's horrible. Why would? That's where we are, though. Understand, my emotion is because this argument's a waste of our time, but we've had to make this argument every time we talk about Jonah for like a hundred years to Christians to convince the Christians to believe it. 
The word of Jesus came to Jonah. That's how a prophet starts his story. And it means everything that comes next, you better take as more true than anything else you ever heard. Now, you think the sun's going to come up tomorrow. That's a maybe compared to this. And I mean it in Jesus' name. It's a maybe compared to this. So as it is written, you know, Jonah is given this amazing commission. Go to Nineveh. I mean, again, think of pedophiles and perverts and witches and all the worst you can think of. Yeah? Thieves and liars. For their wickedness has come up before me. God hears when wicked men do wicked things, even outside of the church. Through all history, every city that's ever been, as soon as the rulers began uh, oppressing their people, God hears it, and he doesn't like it, and he sends punishment. Sometimes that punishment is on the people themselves for their unbelief, and don't get me wrong. But when the wickedness as a cry comes up to heaven, Jesus always hears. And even if you are Nineveh, that great city they called it, because in the ancient world, there would have been nothing like it. You cannot even imagine. New York has nothing on this. Yeah. Nineveh, uh, their wickedness has been heard, and God's going to do something about it. Now, what is he going to do again? That comes in later. Jonah's going to preach, repent, or else fire will come from heaven. And as the story will go, they will repent, and the fire will not come. But Jonah, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which... Tarshish is kind of an out-of-the-way place. It's, it literally is the farthest away you can get on a map at that time. Like, you know, it's like a region. It's not really a city. It's like a, an area past Spain. Right? And so he gets on a boat to like leave the planet. It's kind of how he's doing this here. From the presence of Jesus, notice this too. Turning on his back on his own God, and he goes down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Paid the fare went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of Jesus. One of the things that's there in the Hebrew, it's very easy to see, every motion Jonah takes is down. It goes down, 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 down into the heart of that boat where the storm is going to come, right? Here it is right away. Doesn't waste any time. But Jesus sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Um, this would be, again, uh, Mediterranean Sea, uh, Second Temple Judaism, first century Rome and Greece, seafaring peoples. These boats are pretty good. You're not taking the Pacific in this boat. It is a good boat, you know, and it's got sailors on it with ropes and things. Like, they know what they're doing. But the Mediterranean, I mean, it can, it can get rough, too. There's some really intense storms that come through there and, and can capsize boats, kill people. Any sailor knows, like, it could be your last every time you go out. And so it, here it is with this vessel being crushed between the waves. They can feel the pressure of the water hitting both sides of the vehicle, yeah? And, and um, well, they're afraid, verse 5. Every man cried out to his God, the boat's out of Joppa. Joppa is on the seashore that should be Israel, but it's also sort of where the Philistines and the Phoenicians never go away. <laughs> uh, the Philistines and the Phoenicians are the sea peoples. That's what they do. They have these cities on the coast, and they like to raid the Israelites, but they mainly go pirating and trading. 
Uh, and so Joppa is a city that's made up not of Jews per se, although there might be some, some Nathalites there or something, but, but by and large, Joppa uh, is a pagan city. This is a pagan boat. So he's not with other Christians or Jews. Um, he is amongst pagans, and in the midst of the storm, you find out what sailors are. They're very religious people, and they kind of have to be because they live with the spirits in ways that we can't imagine. These storms and the weathers, they, they, any sailor you ever meet, will have an edge of at least taboo to him or superstition to him. So in any case, they're calling on their gods in the storm. That makes sense. Why would you not if you thought you had one? <laughs> yeah? Um, and so, so they do. Um, but, but, right, they try to lighten the load, it says. Jonah is down in the lowest part of the ship. He's, he's asleep. Sleeping through it. That's kind of miraculous in its own. I mean, there. The, the captain comes, verse 6, and wakes him up. Yeah? Says to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of piety, like in downtown Rockford, amongst all the everybody? You know? Like, like, there's a mass shooting and everyone goes, wait, call on your God. I don't care which one, just call on a God. Like, can you, can you see how different the world is now? <laughs> they would have even thought, oh, a storm. Let's ask God to do something about it, right? And when was the last time we saw a storm coming off of, of the coast of America and all America fell on our knees and called on God, right? It's just, what I'm trying to demonstrate is how much we've lost of the freedom to believe he's with us. We really have lost that here. That even the pagans kind of knew you know, once. You know, there, there is a God. They said to one another, let's cast lots. This had to be fun for Jonah to watch. Uh, that they may know for whose cause the trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots. And it falls to Jonah. It's, it's the worst spin the bottle game ever. Uh, and, and there's a terrible storm. And everyone thinks it's supernatural. And someone's at fault. And then it's the pips to you, man. Yeah? And uh, I mean, Jonah knows. Jonah knows. Uh, they said to him, please tell us, verse 8, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? So they, they still are pious. Like the lot fell to him and they think, okay, it's your fault, but we're going to give you a chance to say something. Now, they don't assume that they have to like throw him in the water just yet, right? Um, they ask him, you know, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? Uh, what people are you? And he says, I am a Hebrew an interesting term uh, from Eber, uh, who is a descendant of, uh, of um, Shem. And we get the Hebrews from that. He's like the great-grandfather of Abraham, something like that. Why is that terminology so important now? I, I don't know. But it, it's the way he says he's an Israelite, right? He, that he is, he is from Judea. Um, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear. There it is. Okay. The Lord, all caps, right? The Lord, all caps. I say Jesus usually when I get there in my Bible because the Lord, in all caps, in the Old Testament, is the name Yahweh, sometimes translated as Jehovah. And in both cases, that name is fulfilled by the name Jesus Christ. Yeshua has the name Yahweh built into it, and that's the name we've been given to call on God by, our Savior and our King, Jesus. Uh, so you can read Yahweh here if you want. 
You can read it as the God of the Old Testament. You can read it as the Trinity if you want. The point in saying the name Jesus is to personalize this. <laughs> this is your God. This is your God. Right. So he says, I fear your God. That's Jesus to me. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, now hear this moment too. For these sailors, they don't necessarily know who this is. They don't know who Yahweh is. They might, some of them, but they, I mean, they all have their own gods. They're, they're, they're seafarers. They're guys from all over the world. Right? And he says, well, I know Yahweh. And let's just say, I know Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the message in the storm. There's a storm still going on. The boat's rocking. Everything's getting crushed. And I know Jesus Christ, he says. And now the text we heard read earlier. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew he had fled from the presence of Jesus because he told them. And so he fills them in. I am a Hebrew. I worship Jesus. And in fact, you're right. The storm is because of me, because I'm fleeing Jesus. And they go, why? <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, uh, and then they say in verse 11, what shall we do to you for the sea to be calm to us? Right? Is there any hope? Is there anything we can do? And verse 12, he tells them something that, I mean, golly, talk about a, a gutsy thing to say. It's your message to share. Pick me up and throw me in the water and everything will be fine, guys. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And you know this is an intense message because they don't want it. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard. They're like, no, no. Like, like, we get it. You're running from your God. We believe in our gods too, but we're not about to just murder you. Notice the charity of these pagans too. Uh, a time of more virtuous men, perhaps. Uh, therefore, instead, when they try to row, they can't. So they cry out and they pray to his God. They don't pray to their gods. They pray to his God. We pray, oh Jesus, please do not let us perish from this man's, for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, oh Jesus, have done as it pleased to you. The idea of innocent blood is another one of these kind of ancient, magical, superstitious things that, that we should probably get back if we could. No, and this is the idea that, like, let's say you come over to my house and I kill you, okay? Like, I'll do it nice, maybe some cyanide in the coffee or something, right? Um, but, you know, I got you to sign a document with a nice health insurance policy before you went. And uh, so we're going to build a new building here at St. Paul with the money we got out of it, right? Um, so uh, that would be called shedding innocent blood, okay, that I kill you without cause, without justice, without jurisprudence, without the state, without the sword, right? But on my own, that leaves a mark on my house. Like if I kill you in my house, and you know this, right? Who's going to buy the house <laughs> when this is all out, right? But that's not just sort of like accidental. That's a fact that when you shed innocent blood on land, the land remembers. The land remembers. And we see this in the Old Testament from Abel's death and onward. And it's why that they're going to go ahead and put that murderous mill over on the east side of Rockford too, try to kill some little babies, maybe sell their parts for medicine. Why? The, the land will 
remember if that happens. And why our prayers that it not happen are part of our prayers for the health and prosperity of Rockford and Illinois. Like we all live here. Most of us are still going to live here for a while. I'm not going anywhere as far as I'm concerned. I would like Rockford to thrive. And I believe that involves not shedding innocent blood. And even these pagan sailors back in Jonah's day knew that. Everybody knew that once upon a time. What changed the value of human life? Why? We don't believe in God. It's pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. It's easy to repent of too, by the way, for us who believe. Okay, so um, they don't want to throw them in the water. They do it anyway. Right? They pray, you know, don't charge with innocent blood. Uh, they pick him up, verse 15, throw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. I love this. Can you imagine, like, the churning and the boiling, all this stuff, and then they, oh, he's in the water, and poof. I no wonder they take vows to Jesus after this. This is my favorite part of this. Uh, the men, verse 16, feared Jesus exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to Jesus and took vows. They, they all became Christians that day. They didn't even see Jonah get swallowed or live through the whole thing. They just threw him in the water and the storm man's They're like, that's God. Yep, that was God. <laughs> hard to miss, right? Written down. Why so hard to believe still? There's lots more. Verse 17. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, Jonah prayed to Jesus. Ah, first, verse 17. Jo uh, Jesus had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. You don't need to like write in your Bible where that had prepared is, but, but had prepared in English is pretty boring for what the Hebrew word says there. It's not the word created, but it's just under the word created, right? So it isn't like out of nothing, God made a fish, but it kind of is almost like there was a fish and God had chosen this fish. God had designed this fish. Like in, in my, my heart as a, as a seminary student, my first thought when I thought this was, oh, this is great. It's like this beautiful giant fish and you get swallowed and it's like going in Pinocchio's you know, whale where there's like a little fireplace inside, maybe a steak dinner, put your feet up for three days, you know, and prepare the fish. If the, the point of that is like God could. God could. Okay, so I don't think he did. I think Jonah got, got quite a ride out of this. He got to experience something a lot like death. I mean, buried alive in the belly of something. I mean, it couldn't have been nice, really. Yeah, but it was salvation because the alternative was to die in the sea, right? And then we have this prayer, which, of course, the scholars will debate, you know, did he pray it just like this in the fish, you know, all smothered down and choking? And I did, what, did he sing it with a tune? Scholars are so stupid. Like, uh, what this text is, is what Jonah wrote after he got out. What happened when he was in the fish is what this text means. It's not a lie. It's not pretend. It wasn't not there, even if it wasn't verbatim, word for word, what he spoke with the fish guts in his face. He was stuck in a dark, cold, horrible place. And here's what he prayed. I cried out to Jesus because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's the grave. Out of the belly of the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. 
and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me, weeds wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Jesus Christ, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered Jesus, and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of Jesus Christ. So Jesus spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Oh, three days of that, though. Three days of where am I? I know you'll save me. Now, can you imagine yourself now? Jesus says to you, go to New York, preach the gospel. You go to California, get in a boat for China, get thrown out of the water. You think Jesus still loves you? Jonah knows Jesus still loves him. Jonah knows he's going to do the opposite of what Jesus said to do. Even when he does go what Jesus says to do, he doesn't want to do it. And he nonetheless doesn't doubt his faith. He doesn't doubt his faith, nor that God will bring him back from the bottom of the pit, either to see him face to face on the day of judgment, or if need be, to, put, to pay what I have vowed. Right? The last thing, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go to Nineveh. Salvation's from Jesus. Now, what I want you to take from this is not that you are free to reject the word of God and assume he is with you. Don't do that. It doesn't work that way. But you are free to just believe God's with you and stop thinking you've rejected the word of God or telling yourself that you've rejected the word of God or believing that somehow your shame, whatever it is, because you're you, is somehow so much worse than everyone else's that you just can't be saved. This is not true. It's not true. Jesus has chosen all of us. <laughs> and we're going to touch on again the Romans text just to make sure we get that one really clear at the end. But once he has chosen you, once he has brought his name to you and put it upon you, which of course your baptism is done, well then that's exactly the point. You can't run far enough away to escape from Jesus. There's nowhere you can go. You're certainly not going to outrun your own grave. And that grave, as you fall down into it like an ocean bit of water sinking and driving you whole, I mean, are you Jonah or are you Peter? Or maybe a little of both, right? You can't run from your grave, but Jesus is in the grave already. And he's come through the other side already. And Jonah's entire prayer in life is just a picture of that before it happened. Jonah's miracle is nothing compared to Jesus' miracle. And the result of Jesus' miracle is like the result of Jonah's only greater too. And hopefully I can pull that together here. Now, verse 1 of chapter 3, same message. Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach to it the message I tell you. Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of Jesus. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city 
a three-day journey in extent. And the journey, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. He cried out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's another one of those points where, like, you know, around 1880, 1890, it sounded really smart to say, <laughs> Nineveh wasn't that big. It can't have been that big. Ancient people were stupid, not like us. And, and the thing is, all the smart guys who said that in the 1800s, they were just wrong about all sorts of stuff. And the archaeology showed it. He didn't even, like, think it through. He just had to dig some more. And Nineveh was huge. We can't imagine the ancient world. We think that we're the only ones that ever did anything. It's really sad. They built the pyramids. I saw a video yesterday of like a guy with like a big old honking, you know, it's not a Tonka tractor, big old you know, earth mover thing. They're trying to move these pyramid blocks and they're demonstrating how our tools can't do it. I mean, and then we sit there, oh, it's aliens maybe or something dumb like that. Like the, the fact is we're just not as smart as we think we are. And Nineveh, as the greatest city first built after Babel collapses. You've got the flood, you've got the Tower of Babel, doesn't work out so well. Nineveh, thousand-year reign, empire, that you know, became wicked at a certain point, but they were huge. And Jonah goes into the crowd. Was he, I don't know, walk through the city just shouting, you're all going to die for that, that, that. Right? What was it? Prostitutes, bad change, you know, like un uneven goods, uh, the, the poor being overly taxed. I mean, it's all the same stuff all the time. We're not that creative when it comes to evil. It just we want to believe it's going to be different this time when we do it. It doesn't work. Forty days, forty, a number that is often given for trial. Right? Jesus in the wilderness, Israel in the desert. Forty days. It's their chance, though. Uh, and uh, it is a, a promissory number. You know, 40 days is going to be also the flood. Right? You're saved through it if you believe. The people of Nineveh believed God. This is the unbelievable part, right? They're not even the Jews. If he'd been sent to Israel, Israel wouldn't have repented. You know, And yet Nineveh repents. They proclaim a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The word came to the king. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ash. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Again, like, can you imagine? I don't care what guy's in the White House. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what party's at. If he said this to all of us, hey, everybody, let's not eat for one day and tell God we're sorry <laughs> and how we'd like to not be evil. Can you imagine the kind of leadership? Ah. Now, again, I don't ask for that from our White House these days. The days of Billy Graham are gone. Uh, but I do ask of it from you. I ask that you would consider your house a better kingdom than the United States of America and one worth repenting in order to save day in and day out. 
and the season of Lent is here for just such a time. I, I don't know that you need to give up something for Lent. I was just asked that yesterday by one of my kids. I almost got mad. <laughs> like, don't give something up for Lent. You know, it, it can become such a toy. And once it's become a toy, it's hypocrisy. But the reason for fasting during Lent is strictly to say to God, I am so sorry. Because you have a reason to. We all do. And once a year, as a body, to say, let's remember how bad it can be. And I'd say in these last few years, if you haven't figured out how bad it's getting, let's ask that it will get better again. Before I run off and try to change the world with what I do, the anointing of Christianity is you get to change the world with what you pray, with what you ask for. And then when you ask for God to change the world by bringing his kingdom into your life, the result is that your mouth will be the one that begins to preach the good news. We're going to come to that here in a moment, but let's, let's finish uh, uh, Jonah first before we go to the Romans text. Verse 10, notice, God is merciful. He saw their works that they turned from their evil way. Had to be the sackcloth on the cows. <laughs> Had to be. <laughs> I couldn't go past that. And God relented from the disaster that he said would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And that's where Sunday school stops, usually, right? And then there's chapter 4, which is like, Jonah gets angry. It displeased Jonah. He became angry. He prayed to Jesus and said, Jesus, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Like, he didn't mean that as good news. <laughs> like, he's kind of mad. He's mad that... that Jesus is relenting from doing harm to the Ninevites. And he's so mad, he's like, therefore, oh Jesus, kill me. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live with all these repentant Christians in this city that's not going to be destroyed. What a strange, selfish man Jonah really ends up being here, yeah? Now, let's rejoice that the book is written because he realized at some point he was selfish and shouldn't be this way. And so he wrote it down for us that he might testify of his repentance. Nonetheless, the lesson that it took for that was what comes next. Jesus says to him, is it right for you to be angry, right? You little petulant twerp, mad that I saved all these people? What are you upset about? So Jonah storms off. He goes out of the city, sat on the east side of the city, and there made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He's holding out hope. They're going to get evil again and be destroyed. And he'll just watch. What a strange man again. And, and Jesus, God, prepared. That's the same word as the fish, by the way. Prepared, just short of created, appointed. Jesus made a very special plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from this misery. And again, if you don't like miracles, I mean, the scholars would argue about which plants could grow so fast and how it would be possible. It's, Jesus did this. Do you remember when he curses the fig tree? Remember that? May no, no fruit grow from you again. What happens? It, it withers that moment. 
So he makes a plant grow over Jonah to give him shade, which is nice. If I'm going to sit and watch fire come down out of heaven, I guess I'd rather do it in the shade. So, so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. He's happy about the plant. And then here's where God's just kind of a mean. Uh, at morning, dawn, the next day, God prepared, same word, a worm so that it damaged the plant and the plant withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so he grew faint. Then he wished for death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah, you're so mad about the plant? Like you want to die because I killed a plant. If you don't see the humor, take a moment and step back and try because it really is there. Jonah, you're upset about the plant? You have pity, verse 10, you have pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, that means under 12 probably, over 120,000 children, and much cows, much livestock, many animals. He likes the animals. God loves the animals and the children. Jonah, you're mad about a plant. And you want me to destroy hundreds of thousands of people when they will believe if someone goes and preaches to them. Can you turn to Romans 10? Last few moments here. Romans chapter 10 is beautiful. Got a lot of complicated context. 9, 10, 11, you're dealing with Israel. Who is Israel? Are Jews saved? Can Jews be saved? How would they be saved? By Jesus, same way we are. I believe in Jesus. And that's really what this is going to say here, as it promises to us the fullness of Christ as the fulfiller of the old covenant law in us by faith. And driving on that idea, your faith, your voice today, as we go home. So verse 8, which you heard read, it says, what does it say? And this is referring to the scriptures. What does the scriptures say about the good news of God's salvation? And the answer, that the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This entire section is here to convince you that Christ is not far away. That God is not far away. That your salvation, your faith, your hope is not far away. It is near you. One of the the great lies that will be told again and again in many, many false religions, they're all under the heading of Gnosticism, they're all under the heading of knowledge. The great lie is that you can learn the secret if you will give enough time to listening to the master. But you must come in and pay your dues and earn the right to be holy the way the master is holy. That is a lie so far as Christianity is concerned. Christianity comes along and says, it's in you now. You don't have to wait. You have to come back and give more. The word is in you, on your heart, and on your 
mouth, in your lips. And he's going to describe what that means after calling it the word of faith that we preach, which means that this word of God that's inside of you, in your heart and in your mouth, it didn't come out of your heart and your mouth in the first place. That's not how it got there. You weren't born a prophet. You were born a sinner. But by baptism, by preaching, by catechesis and exhortation, and the story being told again and again, the word of God outside of you has gone into you, and it has changed your heart. It has made your heart to believe in him. That word of faith that Christ proclaims now inside of you is that which you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now here he lays it out. It's such a beautiful verse. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now he has a little future tense on there. We're talking about the future, but not just that. It's the present too. You are saved. You are being saved. You have a savior. You have a God who will save at all times. Why? How do you know? Well, have you confessed that Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead? Do you believe that that is true? I mean, we're, we're Lutherans here. We don't, we don't do a little altar call where you come down and, and you pray the sinner's prayer and you say, oh, Jesus, today I give my heart to you. Now I really will follow you. Now I really will follow you. We don't just do that like once and then tell you that's kind of Christianity. Um, but, but actually our, our catechism on baptism, it says we do that every day. That every day we get on our knees and we say, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, I repent. I need you to be my savior. And if you've never actually done that, I really suggest you try. I mean, just out loud. It doesn't have to be like all vigorous. It could just like, like in the morning, Jesus, be my savior today from all the troubles I will find today because you're risen from the dead. Like that is the free gift of Christianity with promises abounding unto everlasting life and kingdom and glory and forever and ever. It just never ends. It's so good. And it starts right there with something so simple. You should never once in your life question whether or not you're a Christian. Have you had too much shame? Done too much wrong? I don't care. Jesus, I'm sorry. Please save me. That was it. You're done. You can do that as often as you want. Now, now don't get me wrong. Like if you do it callously and you're going to go use it for evil, you're going to get what you get out of it. You know, you can't, you can't trick God. Right? right? But he's, this isn't about being tricked. This is about the, the pouring out of authentic hope for today into your life by means of the knowledge that he has risen. Alleluia. And because he has risen from the dead, you knowing this are saved. Now, there's no more to add. With the heart you believe unto, it says in the New King James, their righteousness, I believe other translations will say justification. You are golden in God's eyes now. You are not dark and blotted, broken and falling apart. You are not filled with shame or error or any such thing. You are filled with light and glory and truth and hope. That's a promise. You don't have to make it. He's going to keep giving it. You will believe unto righteousness. Uh, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. He quotes some more beautiful Old Testament passages here. Uh, whoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. I want to emphasize in our last few moments uh, verses 14 and following, which is very famous in uh, Lutheran church, uh, in, in the, the 
worldwide Lutheran church here. I'm not talking Missouri Synod even, but in terms of the history of the Lutheran understanding of ourselves. Like, what are we here to do as Christians? Uh, well, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how, is they, how shall they hear without a preacher? So, what is Christianity to do? I mean, care for the poor, love your children and raise them in the faith. You know, uh, vote, well, vote. Take care of the city by means of good policy, true law, don't murder, don't steal, right? All these things. We're to send preachers. We're to do something that's kind of unheard of. We're to take the best of our young men and we're to tell them, don't make money, don't succeed, don't grow something massive to give to your kids. Give it all up and go somewhere with a bunch of people that you don't know and teach them about Jesus the rest of your life. We're supposed to do that. The promise is when we send our best men doing that, the church is never going to ever fail, ever, ever going to fail. I, I don't know that we've been sending our best men. I don't know that we've been considering the sacrifice worth the sacrifice. Uh, Life in America has gotten pretty good, and I'll admit, even I got into the ministry somewhat thinking of it as a nice career path. And that's not good. That's not good at all. What is good is what these verses are getting at, though, that isn't just about me, Jonathan, a preacher here at St. Paul, or or us sending some of our sons someday to the seminary, or, or, or anything like that. Or, or even, if you haven't talked to one of us locally, is thinking about doing a more local route to ordination that would involve helping our pro-life community. All of that is sending a preacher. But this text from Romans, it, it ends with the preacher being sent. It, it doesn't start there. How would they believe if they have not heard? Uh, most people learn of Jesus from their parents, not their pastor. As the head of a household teaches, they will certainly learn if he puts the name of Jesus upon his lips. Yeah. So how would they believe if they have not heard? The point of this, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, is that it's your feet. It's your feet that are beautiful. Because your feet are now members of the feet of Jesus, the body of Jesus. And his feet are beautiful. They're crucified for us, right? And thankfully, he's so wonderful with it that he, he puts that body and blood into bread and wine. We don't have to wash his feet. We just get to eat his feast instead. And then know that because we confess with our mouth that Jesus is risen and we believe in our hearts that he is God, that we are made beautiful head to toe. Sons of the living God, light in the midst of darkness, salt in a world that needs to be cleaned and given some flavor. Huh? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, of those who bring the good tidings. Uh, as you go your way today, um, I, I thought long and hard this weekend about you know, what message I want you to take from St. Paul Lutheran Church. I, where do you, wherever you go, wherever you're going to be next, yeah. I want you to believe that you are the beautiful creation of Jesus Christ, that he has redeemed you for today, and that that knowledge, that hope, is a righteousness sufficient to see even greater glories open up when you put his name on your lips. In the name of Jesus, amen.